Welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, DPT Steph, your doctor of physical therapy, bringing you all things PT with an interdisciplinary approach so that you can be the best clinician that you want to be. Thank you for tuning in to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is Stephanie, your doctor of physical therapy, otherwise known as DPT Steph. On this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Rich Severin, Doctor of Physical Therapy, and I'm so excited to have him on today. To get us started, why don't you give us a little introduction about yourself? Uh, So my name is uh, Rich Severin. I am a uh, board-certified cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapist. I practice and faculty at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where I'm finishing a PhD, uh, and coordinate the bariatric rehabilitation program and direct our certificate program in um, health communication and content marketing. And uh, I'm also finishing a PhD in cardiorespiratory physiology, specifically looking at the effects of obesity um, on respiratory muscle function uh, in patients awaiting weight loss surgery and different health outcomes. I'm also part-time faculty at Baylor University in their DPT program there. And then uh, I am associate editor for Cardiopulmonary Physical Therapy Journal and the host of their podcast, uh, which you were on not too long ago. We're hoping to kind of get some new things kind of coming through there. And then obviously PT Reviewer and all the other different stuff I'm doing. And maybe by today, I'll have some other things added to my list, but I'll keep you guys all posted on that. As if the list isn't long enough, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So how would you describe your PT journey? When did you kind of know you wanted to be a PT and kind of take us through what that's been like to get you to where you are today? That's a great question. Um, And it's interesting. I was just on a Zoom journal club last evening with some students from Mercy College that invited me and Rachel Brzezinski to come talk to them about our PhD journey. And uh, one of the things I mentioned to them that, you know, we often have a view of success in your career being a linear process right? It's not. <laughs> and it kind of takes you to places you never imagined. So just, just from perspective, I started out, and I think most people know me, know my story. I didn't know about, I didn't know what a physical therapist was um, until my junior year of college. You know, I played sports in, in high school. You know, I, I played sports in college well. And, uh, you know, I knew of a physician, I knew of a surgeon, I knew of a nurse, pharmacist, and I knew of athletic trainers. We had an athletic trainer, you know, in high school for wrestling. We had one with rugby that I played for Penn State. So I started out in college as a, a biology major, got kind of bored doing like non-human biology. And I realized I wouldn't get to that stuff until like my senior year. I was doing stuff with fruit flies. I was a work study student, um, which was kind of a great experience in science, doing like cereal planting and stuff, which is cool. I get to work for my aunt, but uh, I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this. I want to work with like people and I probably want to go to med school anyway. And so I was like, all right, well, I like athletics. I want to do something with, with that. I was like, okay, athletic trainers, like that would be maybe a good major to do to kind of get me like prepared for med school. So I switched into that and I did really well with that. And then we took one of our athletes to who had surgery to a clinic um, affiliated with the university and work with a specialist over there and they're doing these like drills and these cool like hands-on techniques and stuff it's like oh man that looks awesome like are you an athletic trainer and he's like no i'm a, I'm a, I'm a physical therapist he was also an athletic trainer too practices a pt and i was like that like how do you 
do you do that? And explained kind of the process for, and I'm like, yeah, I, I think I kind of want to do that. So I switched into the general major and I, that person uh, named John Miller and it became one of my, we had this undergraduate mentor program that I ended up spending like uh, two full semesters with him, wrote me my, my letter of recommendation for PT school. And yeah, so that's kind of how I fell into my lap, but I mean, my career and, and, and choice and stuff, and even to where I'm at today, my experiences as a tech, you know, as an undergraduate intern, you know, Penn State, and then after graduating, I worked for a tech, were all an outpatient. I didn't know if PTs did anything for patients with heart and lung issues at all. Um, I hadn't had any real hospital experience. And again, of course, I'm still just learning about PTs, really. I chose Miami as a PT school because I'm like, well, I want to work with athletes. You know, that's where all the athletes are. They're in South Florida. Miami is a, you know, big time athletic program and all that stuff. So I'm like, well, I kind of want to go there. And they're, you know, they're, they're known for certain things too. So I went down there with the goal of like staying down there, staying in South Florida. You know, I thought I wanted to do research as well too. Um, so I always knew that I probably want to do a PhD afterwards, but not in what I do now. And uh, I had a really great mentor um, that was the timing was just chance guy named Larry Cahalan who had just come down from Northeastern the legend and taught our therapeutic physiology course and I was like man like you work you do exercise testing work for patients with heart failure and all this cool stuff and I was like yeah like I, I love physiology like I didn't know like we did anything with this I would spend hours just you know after class just like picking his brain um just fascinated and I, you know I think he was encouraged by it and stuff too that and then uh, now he's one of my good good friends and colleagues. And then I've had uh, another professor um, who after him, our cardiopalm course, uh, Meryl Cohen, who was one of the first three cardiopalm specialists. And that just kind of cemented it. Um, and I also had some time working with uh, another cardiopalm specialist as a graduate assistant doing some of the early parts of early mobility. And then obviously led me to a residency. And then, you know, I decided I want to do a PhD and that also was kind of an, <laughs> an interesting situation too. But long story short, yeah, it was it was all by chasing my different passions and interests and then being open to letting my passions dictate kind of what I wanted to do. And it's led to, I think, a pretty fulfilling life. Like I enjoy what I do, uh, found success. And uh, even though I do a lot, like it's, it's all sort of connected to a certain degree. I'm at 35 now. If you asked me, if you asked me 17 years ago, would I be living in Chicago as a physical therapist, as a faculty member, you know, at UIC and at Baylor? I would have been like, again, first off, what is a physical therapist? And yeah, so life is not linear. It's going to take you in different places you never imagined. And like, I don't like cold weather. That's the other thing too. Like, I know. And I moved to Miami. I remember telling people, I was like, I'm done with winter. I'm never coming back. So how are you surviving in Chicago? Yeah, uh, barely, <laughs> barely. You know, but I think uh, what you you talk about though is very interesting, and like I know I try to emphasize that when I speak to students too, is like you can go into school thinking you want to do one thing, and you may come out thinking, okay, I'm going to do the same thing I thought I was going to. But if you're the whole premise that should be behind it is you are open throughout your two, three, however many years your program is to kind of take in all of these other experiences because you never know also like if you want to do 
sports going in, you may do sports coming out, but maybe there'll be like an exercise physiology twist to the specific sports or athletes you're working with. So, you know, I think it's very important that you highlighted that. And I agree that it's definitely not linear and I'm figuring that out two years out of school right now. And I'm like, okay, well, things might need to change. So awesome points. What would you say has been the most pivotal? So from like graduation to a PT school to where you are now, how have you kind of figured out that path? What resources, or obviously you went back to get your PhD, so that's specific schooling, but kind of when students graduate, how do they know where to find or like see if they're interested in getting a PhD or figuring out other certifications or paths? Yeah, so that's actually great. So I do this with my students that I advise at Baylor, and I do this even with students at, at UIC too. I don't really have an advising role there, but I mean, life is kind of a crazy storm, and I view it kind of, kind of analogy. You're on a boat, you know, on your journey, your trajectory, your attack. That what will help get you through those crazy moments is knowing your destination and like having a good vision of what success looks like to you a year from now and five years from now. That is not a static goal. But the reason why I I always say that's probably the most important thing is because there are, what I say, opportunities, and then there's invitations, and invitations just to do stuff. And I think there's a lot of temptation and it can be a lot of confusion about stuff that comes across your desk that looks appealing, but it doesn't really get you to your goal. And I think certifications, residencies are all, there's a lot of even social pressures. You see, you know, your your classmates, your friends, your colleagues doing this certification, doing this residency. And like, well, like they're doing that. I guess I have to do that. And it's like, well, maybe you don't, right? Because maybe what you envision as success is completely different. It should be. Even picking your job, where you want to work, right? The hours you want to work. And I think that helps maybe reduce the risk potentially of burnout because you make informed choices that are fulfilling to you. So even when things get chaotic, you're like, okay, like this is stressful, this is challenging, like a PhD, it is for me, residency, like it was for me, but I'm like, this is getting me to my vision. And maybe sometimes you need to change the vision according to different life events. Like maybe, you know, you have kids or you get married, your goals, you know, get changed or, or anything. But that's what I say is probably the biggest thing. Spend some time, write it out. I don't, I don't ever make it required. I'm like, this is a good thing to do. Just write it out. Put it in writing. What does this look like to me? So you can always go back to it when those big decisions come across your desk. Discern, okay, is this just an invitation that I can say no to, which is important skill to learn? Or is this an opportunity to get me to one of these goals? And then constant reflection. I think that's awesome. I, I'm yeah. like sitting here, I'm like, hmm, this is great information for me right now. Because, <laughs> you know, you think, especially coming out of school, you think you have this one vision, but obviously, like you said, life happens and you can't really lose the grip or lose sight of mm-hmm. what your values were, what you were envisioning two, three, four, five years ago. That was great. I just, I don't yeah. have anything to add because I just ruined it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, Again, like life is, it's like navigating the seas and sometimes you get, you get waves, you get storms. If you got that compass, you got your map, which I view those goals are your rudder, you can get through there and you know, keep on your trajectory. And I, I do it myself. I've been doing it since I really started this journey and I, it changes, 
but it's just, I think it's a good exercise. Social media too, that makes it even tougher because everyone sees everything that like, oh man, this person's doing this. They look doing great. I'm like, well, like that's great for them. Like, you know, if you feel fulfilled in your own life, like that's all that matters. If you feel fulfilled with what you view as success, you're getting to that. Social media has, I think, been a huge downfall in a lot of those reasons because it's it's a highlight reel. And, you know, yeah. you have people talk about it all the time, like, okay, social media is a highlight, highlight reel, highlight reel. They take everything with a grain of salt. But when you're so consumed by it, you often forget that. And yeah. it's so hard. I know, especially, I mean, I don't want to, like, gender specify it, but I'm, I feel like females may be more burdened by it for lack of yeah. better words and that's that's why like I try to show everything on my platform I'm like this is life right now it's not fun or especially during COVID like this is not fun I mean not that anyone could possibly glorify COVID in any ways but my point being like you have to really think like yes you can pose happily in scrubs in one picture but maybe the next day I'm hysterically crying because my patient just died so like yeah. there's such an emotional roller coaster with everything and it's definitely something we have to like never try to lose grip over now yeah. the power of social media it's so many networking opportunities for students new grads whoever you can have literally so many connections at your fingertips that you would probably would have never had prior mm -hmm. to all of this what do you see as a benefit to having or portraying pt on social media from the stuff that you talk about yeah, so I, I just want to come back to that that one point too. So yeah, I, I don't know if there's a difference. I, I can't speak, I'm not a woman. I can't speak for what <laughs> women go through, um, which I think is good advice for most men. Um, but uh, the other is um, when you see those things, I think what, what can inoculate you from some of the toxins or toxic stuff from social media is that is that being grounded in, your, in what you view as success because when you can, when you really know what your plan is, it doesn't really matter what other people are doing because you, you're on a plan, you're on a journey. But uh, back to the other point you had mentioned, I encourage you guys to do this. Like it's inevitable, you're going to come across this stuff. But social media can be uh, useful for a lot of things. You know, I, I gave this Oxford uh, debate two years ago now. You know, our our position, you had to argue for it, was it's enabled us to reach more communities and we you know we didn't think was possible you know for me personally the collaborations that i've had there's no way no way i would have had some of these collaborations and, and i think that comes from kind of going back to what i said you know earlier about this being like being strategic like doing it intentionally using social media as a tool right not just something that consumes me like i can consume it i use it for something that i'm get me to my goals and stuff. And of course, there's time for folly and fun, sharing funny stuff. But um, in terms of impact, like I think it's, yeah, like the, I, the, what I really appreciate, even during the COVID pandemic, the number of like non-clinicians, uh, I would share stuff constantly from what I do for a living, um, stuff I teach and health communication. Like I knew we were in for some misinformation. I, I knew it was going to happen. And so I try to get out in front of everything. The messaging that was coming from large public health organizations, I don't think was curated well enough for the most lay people, which has led to a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the confusion now. So I try to get it, you know, just within my community, people in my little ecosystem, um, try to get messaging out there. And the number of people that came up to me are like, hey, like, you know, I was hesitant about 
the vaccine or hesitant about this. I read this this way. Like, you know, reading your stuff like helped a lot. Like, and I, you know, I had people that were on the fence getting the vaccine that I talked them through it. It's like, hey, like this is this is what this actually means. This is the relative risk of these things. You know, you, I always respect you, you know your decision, but this is just the reality. You know, you can trust me. You know, I'm your friend. I'm gonna be your friend either way. That a perfect example of how it can be useful. You can reach people in ways that you didn't think possible. And these are, you know, close friends and family members, of course. And um, but even like that, like random maybe friend from high school you don't talk to as much anymore. They they would still see your content. Like I still probably have a little bit more inherent trust, you know, compared to like a some newscaster or some someone else that they haven't seen before. I remember stuff that people were putting out there about mask wearing and like CO2, like it's just like the amount of misinformation was out there, you know, there's no wonder, there's no wonder that people were so confused. Um, Cause when people take, take root of uh, anything that kind of resonates with their already held beliefs, it's really hard to unpack. So we got to kind of have to fight fire with fire and put things out that are, will resonate with people. So it's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, we can go down a whole rabbit hole of those things, I'm, I'm sure. But yeah, it's, it's also, you know, one of the points you said where people from, you know, high school or people you, you know, from way back when that still kind of lurk in the shadows. I've kind of noticed that too, where there's more people listening than actually show themselves, yep. which is what you have to remember too, because you don't want to say the wrong thing. Yep. <laughs> um, but as far as, you know, your information is getting more widely spread than it's always made note of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's something good to be mindful of when you have a platform. Yep. For sure. Uh, where do you see, I mean, I always talk to people who have been in the profession way longer than I've been, you know, from, I can think where when I was a first or second year, so this is back in 2017, 2018, PT on social media wasn't really, or I didn't believe at least it was really prominent. Like you had your a few major orthopedic exercise-based accounts that were already large and in charge and doing their their thing. But there, I feel like now in 2020, 2021, so many more have popped up. So where do you see or hope to see kind of social media propel the PT profession going forward? Yeah. It's interesting. So I was one of the early adopters of it, created PT Reviewer when I was a student. In fact, uh, I had started it, and then Greg Todd came and talked to our class at Miami, and that kind of really leaned, leaned into it. So Greg, Greg and I go back a long ways. Um, and yeah, you're right. There, there really wasn't, and even the accounts that were big then aren't as big anymore. There's been so many you know, other ones that have really come up, like um, the prehab guys. I remember Craig. <laughs> I remember Craig was a PT student. I think he had just started at USC and added me. He's like, oh, this is a cool, this is a cool kid for and we're buddies now. And now obviously prehab guys are like massive, like they're they like a million followers or something like that. So they're like featured on ESPN or some, something crazy like that. So um, but you're right, like it's definitely it's proliferated. I think social media in general has gotten bigger, more users on it, more consumers. So by nature, there's going to be more accounts, larger accounts. I think the challenge has been. For our profession for years historically or too inward focused and obviously it's important to be inward focused to improve things and address things professionally like you can't you know you gotta ha- gotta get your your house in order before you start doing things externally or you gotta do them at least at the same time and there's a lot of things in our in our house that need to be rectified 
don't get me wrong there, but the biggest impact we can make in terms of progressing the profession is being more publicly public facing, directing more of our, our marketing, our, our campaigning, our advocacy efforts externally. Because, I mean, there's one, a lot of reasons. Look at all the, the most successful accounts generally. They're consumers or everybody. It's not just PTs. Prehab guys being a perfect example. Like they, I mean, PTs probably use their stuff, but I'd say in general, their stuff is for anybody who works out or has any issues with anything, right? Um, you can go down the list. Jen Esker, uh, Doc, Doc Jen Fit, right? That's like, I guess, right? Thing, right? She's got a huge, uh, million followers on thing as well too. Same idea, you know, Kelly Starrett, people give him a bad rap, but there's an impact because he is outwardly focused, right? Um, and I could, I could go down the list. Um, so while there's always a place for people, you know, I think your, your, your content, my content generally focus more within the profession and maybe some stuff on the outside um, to really make an impact. And the thing you got to learn too is even if you don't have a super massive account, like focusing on your local community, like that's really, if you want to be, you know, successful as a practice owner or a PT, like you're as big as your community, really. But I think that's going to be the next, the next biggest thing. And because it's like I mentioned COVID, there is so much bad information out there that's packaged really well to be really appealing. And there just isn't enough yet, I think, combating a lot of that bad information and, uh, you know, social media is for, I mean, I mean, you can pay money to do stuff, but it's free. Like you can, you can use it to your advantage for a lot of different things. But so yeah, publicly facing, I, and I've been, I've been banging this drum for years. Like, Hey, it's great to talk about amongst other PTs, but the real fight is external to the profession. So. Yeah. yeah and I totally agree. That's something that I kind of realized more so being in the hospital too, because I have to work with so many different disciplines and I'm realizing, well, okay, I'm also need to educate what exactly my role is while I'm taking care of these patients to these disciplines, because I don't think anyone's really taken the time to like spell it out for them. Like, yes, I do walk their patient, but I'm also not the ambulator of the unit. So like, you know, things like that. And that's also kind of why I started the podcast because I was like, I need to talk to doctors or other clinicians that are not in the PT world that kind of gain their perspective and then help kind of make this message of, all right, well, I'm a PT, you're a physician, what can we do to work together? How, what do you know about the profession? And then how can we move forward to kind of benefit each other? Um, so th there is a lot of work to be done though. I, I, I agree with that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What would you say, you know, you're working on a long laundry list of things right now. So try kind of changing gears a little bit. Uh, what would you say the thing is that you're most focused on right now? Or one of the things that you would like to discuss? Well, I don't know if it's going to go for this, for this uh, podcast. Because I don't tell PT guys when I dive into physiology, but my dissertation is my number one priority. Like that's, that's number one, you know, like having that go through the I was talking to my PhD mentor about I should write a book this kind of stuff to get through the with radiation safety for a DEXA scan for having data collection halted in the middle due to a pandemic getting COVID myself you know earlier on in the pandemic and yeah so but we're in a good spot now you know if if, if 
if things don't shut back down um, for the next couple of months, I should be good. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my primary focus is uh, defending that, and we're we're projecting probably a February defense. So that's probably that's my main priority right now. Nice. And that's a lot of work if no one is familiar with dissertations. So I've heard are a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> the good thing is though, I've got a lot of it, a lot of it done. I just need a few more people to kind of complete our testing so I can finish our, our data collection. But yeah. Nice. And then you had mentioned something too about um, like bariatric surgery rehabilitation. Yes. So yeah, I, I can talk about, about that. that. Yeah. 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 Let's hear it. Yeah. That's <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think I think the dissertation is interesting too, but oh, yeah, so I don't true. know. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if your listeners want to dive too deep into <laughs> that. So, uh, but bariatric rehab—it's—it's it's really an, an early. I mean, it's we were kind of early adopters of that here. Um, it goes back to like 2017, where I was just like following the surgeons, just like as they rounded with patients in clinic and would treat patients like like the medical office, like say like same day sometimes, like. Um, and then we realized, like, I need space. I need, you know, we have our faculty practice, which was still kind of like developing as part of that as our residency. And uh, I was uh, like, let's, well, let's create a clinic. Let's create a clinic service and I'll coordinate it and stuff. And so basically what we do now is I see all patients preoperatively and postoperatively. And the general view is I address any barriers they may have to physical activity. Now that could be a pain issue balance issue, mobility issue, a stiffness issue, a breathing issue. Um, we do a lot of respiratory, we do serial respiratory muscle performance testing. Um, and some it's just like they've never exercised before. They don't know what to do. They're intimidated by the gym, you know, or they can't afford it. Like I, I, mean, I Most of my patients are, you know, from um, south side of Chicago or west side of Chicago. And like, I grew up in a pretty I don't know, rougher area myself so I can, I can definitely I mean um, you know speak to like yeah, sometimes it's not safe to walk outside you know for exercise by yourself you know so just getting okay what can we you know or they can't afford a gym so what can we do at home to kind of get you stuff and get you going and uh, it's been very well received we're hoping to expand um, as well bring another therapist and uh, it ties all into my research my research is looking at you know, physical activity really, um, exercise capacity in patients with obesity. The, the dissertation is focused kind of on how breathing is a big issue, and you know, our clinic again looks at all barriers. So it's 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 a really kind of a unique model how these different things kind of work work within each other, and um, it's also just working working with this population is giving me such a greater perspective on you know the social determinants of health. Like I mentioned, some of those other issues that we we see. Um, you know, that what really goes into someone struggling with weight loss, someone who's gained a lot of weight, you know, I think we've got a, a really, you know, part of my French, very stupid view um, of how people become obese and remain obese, that it's self-determinism, like they, they, they can't help themselves, they love food, they're lazy, and I was like, man, that's, that's dumb, that's not true. Um, you know, most patients who who come in our clinic, our clinic service, have tried to lose weight before. And the research supports 70% of people who are obese try to lose weight every year. And obviously our obesity rates increase. So people try and fail every single year. It's incredibly wow. hard to lose weight. Um, you factor in prenatal flavor learning, what people learn 
like food preferences, eating habits were formed in childhood. So some people may have never had the chance, really. I mean, you look at where like, you know, grocery stores are located, the cost of certain healthy groceries, advertisement of junk food to certain demographics are different. Um, you look at, you know, it's an unfortunate thing in our population, but there's a, an unresolved trauma often exposed in childhood, often sexual trauma. There's so many more layers to why someone becomes obese, you know, especially at the point where they're, you know, in our clinic BMI average of 50, you know, very large individuals. There's so much more to it. And I mean, growing up in lower middle class, you know, in the city, so I had a, a pretty good perspective of some of this stuff. You know, I teach it to my students. Just you got to be a little bit more kind to people and a little bit more empathetic. And not even just empathetic, just evidence-based because it's just, just like it's it's not what people think it is. You know, and it's, it's there's so many more factors at play. And um, there's like you said, there's so much more to it. But that also comes down to actually listening to the patient and not judging the book by its cover, which we know. In medicine, there's a long history yeah. of people saying, oh, just lose weight when you have pain. So really kind of, I just needed to focus on that because I was like, that's so important for people, yeah. especially when they're moving into the profession to just really kind of understand that. Yeah, and I, I just say segues what we want to talk about is, you know, I, the number of patients I work with that you know, are obese have a pain issue and all they're told is like, well, lose some weight. I'm like, well, I've got back pain got knee pain. I can't really do too much exercise wise because it hurts to, I can't do it. And it's like, you know, we're so the advice they're given lose weight. I'm like, well, I don't have the physical tools to do that. So to me, it's like, you know, we fail obese patients routinely in medicine for the number of patients that <clears throat> had, um, had an injury we talk about this with the opioid epidemic and like you don't see PT. We don't talk about how maybe the opioid epidemic intersects with the obesity epidemic and the physical inactivity epidemic. Whereas someone gets an injury, given medication and no PT services, and then they become increasingly less active and increasingly more, more obese, whereby which it becomes harder to become active. And then um, we could also talk about the kind of what led me to the questions I'm looking at. A lot of patients with obesity are just um, told they have asthma. No spirometric testing whatsoever. I know there's some guidelines say that you can, you can get by just interview subjective-based assessment, but I actually wager a lot of the asthma symptoms patients have are, are respiratory muscle weakness to uh, impose demands changes to the you know, things that happen with obesity, lung chest walk, uh, complex. But it's wild. But yeah, that, that's something that I, I think that, yeah, I, I, it's like, okay, well, see, it's telling someone to lose weight who's in pain. You're, you're kind of missing the mark here. Like, what, do something for their pain. What can you do to help their pain? And then kind of get them on an activity plan. So, yeah. Solid, solid points all around. I have nothing to add to that because it was just so well said. I loved it. Awesome. All right, we're going to start wrapping up. What tips would you have for students that are, we kind of spoke about this a little bit in the beginning, but anything that you would add when they're trying to kind of navigate through their PT journey? So while they're in school? Yeah, we're transitioning yeah. out. Uh, so if you're in school, I, I'd say the biggest thing is, I did residencies and you know, finishing a PhD. You will never get another time in your life to just focus on learning. You will never get another opportunity to do that. 
um, it ends here. You know, at least you go, you know, even if you go back to school, you know, later in life, you maybe have other responsibilities. Right now, just put as much time as, in as you can to, to mastery. And that doesn't mean like 4.0 grades, like that doesn't really matter as much. A little bit of advice for people applying to residencies after PT school, like your grades don't really help you. Like it's, I mean, it can only really necessarily hurt you if you don't, if you don't do well, but like, you know, if anyone's above a decent enough grade, three, five, three, like it, you're, you're fine. No one really cares after that point, but put as much time in as you can to focusing on mastery, learning, learning everything you can take as many electives as you can ask your professors questions, like pick their brains. Like you're paying all this money for school. This is a limited time where you'll be able to just to focus on learning, use it. And you know, that's what I did. I was a student. I took pretty much every elective I could. I'm like, it's not going to cost me any extra. You know, I'm learning different skills that like I could bring into practice right after I graduate, you know, and, and to those graduating, I, you know, I hear, I know you hear this probably from everybody, but find a mentor. Talk about this with my students as well, too, that when you graduate PT school, we give this, I think, false label that you are, um, or a bit of a misnomer, that you are a generalist. We're not a generalist. You are a basicist. You can treat pretty much every population at a very basic level or perhaps entry level, which is what you are to get to upon graduation. So your license kind of certifies you to do safe, competent care, not mastery care, right? Competent and safe care at a basic entry level, you know, to, to get better at those things, a reasoning process to, to really handle more complex cases takes time. We call it clinical practice. You need refinement of the, of the reasoning skill. And, uh, you can certainly do that on your own. It's hard to. And the demands of practice now don't make it easy. Because, you know, the reimbursement, productivity demands are, are outrageous in, in some places. You're just trying to keep your head above water with documentation, billing, all this stuff. And then, of course, trying to have a life outside of it, which is important, too. I recommend make sure you focus on having a life outside of your profession. But... Having someone who can kind of show you the way, they can pick, you can pick your brains and refine those skills of reasoning. It, you know, every profession does this, really. Medicine does it, and they have a very formal process for it. Pharmacy does it. I think nursing does it to some degree. Other countries for PTs, they had you kind of round around in different facilities, like in NHS and in the UK. For some reason, we don't mandate it. Um, I hear we don't have a process for people. We kind of throw them into the fire and figure it out. Now, that's not to say that everyone needs to do a residency because I don't think for everyone that a residency is needed. Residency does guarantee mentorship, you know, and some places do offer it. Got to be careful with clinics that say they offer mentorship if the person's not paid to be a mentor. It's not part of their job description. And if they weren't hired to do that, even if they're paid for it, it's like, are they really, is there, you know, there can be exceptions, though. There are external mentorship groups. So whatever your choice is, whether it's a residency, whether it's a formal res or mentorship program within your clinic, um, or finding an external one um, through different academies of the APTA, through groups like um, Level Up, 
clinical athlete, those guys, barbell medicine, wh whoever, find someone to learn from. And then once you're ready to, to do that, bring it back. So that's what's going to help elevate the entire profession. I hope at some point we get to a, pro a point where we're able to guarantee that. So I, I think, again, things that inoculate you from burnout, from the stress of being a healthcare provider in the United States of America is, again, those goals and then having someone to show you the ropes that those first formal years, because if you don't, I mean, we see it. We see it. it. It's tough for people. And 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 I and I, I wish there was more we could do. Uh, but I think those are the two big things we can we can probably lean more into to help newer graduates. Yeah, I think it's yeah. solid points. And I think it's also important to make note of when you are a new grad looking for a job and you ask about mentorship, make sure it's a formal mentorship situation because anyone can say yes and it sure. could last a week or a day and then yep. you're flying on your own. Yeah. Um, awesome. All right. Well, that was great. Uh, any final thoughts that you want to make note of before we wrap up? Vitals are vital. And always. Uh, always. And the other thing, too, um, I think it's real important to remind students or any new graduates as well, like, or anyone at any point, like, there's a reason why you're in the position you're in, right? Like, it's so it's easy sometimes to forget all the amazing things you accomplish. In, in the past, get to the situation in which you may be experiencing some stress, but like you're bigger than and more accomplished than you think you are, or you might be thinking you are in the moment. Um, so, and again, think of all the people that have been behind you and supporting you. You got a lot more people that want you to do well and you're gonna do well because you have historically. And if you don't even do well in that moment, well, that didn't stop you before, keep going. And uh, when you do attain success, make sure you celebrate. So I think that's something we, we I don't know why we discourage that as a society. Like, you should celebrate success, celebrate other people's success, like share joy, be happy for other people. Yeah. I love it. That's a good one, too. Like, it's not, and I was reading something actually recently about that. It's not coming off cocky or conceited or egotistical in any way. Like, you should just genuinely be happy for other people always. Yeah. It just yeah. lifts everybody up. Love yeah. it. Yeah, lift yourself up. You can't love other people if you don't love yourself, and you should love yourself. You're pretty True. awesome. Knowledge bombs. I love it. Great yeah. vibes all around. All right, Rich, where can people find you if they have questions or want to contact you? Yeah, uh, you can find me on my social media accounts, uh, PT Reviewer at PT Reviewer on Twitter or Facebook.com, I guess, dot slash or slash PT Reviewer. And Instagram is PT underscore Reviewer. I, there's someone that took it. I was all, I didn't go on Instagram for years. It was a stupid decision probably of mine and someone took it and just, I don't even use it. It's like a dead account. So, um, and then uh, I have a YouTube channel, but it's mainly just like technique videos and lectures for myself. I don't really do anything with that. So, but yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to have you. And if you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always reach out to me or Rich and that's all we got for you. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much, Steph. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.